0: And welcome to Cursed Objects with me, Dr. Kasia T.
1: And me, Dan Hancocks.
0: Okay, so today we're going to be talking about the reproduction of images. And I have brought in one of my favourite cursed objects today. It's trademarked as Holy Toast! And with the exclamation mark. So if you imagine a piece of sliced white bread, this object is a little smaller than that. And it's essentially a stamp but for bread. So basically, when you toast it, the Virgin Mary, like, appears in the toast. And I guess it's kind of like a riff on, you know, all of those, like, news stories that appear on, like, exceptionally slow news days, (laughs) where they're kind of like, man sees Jesus in toast, tries to sell it for 25k on eBay, or something like that.
1: Yeah, I I hadn't really heard those specific stories. But I did actually look this up when you told me this is what we were going to be talking about today. And yeah, they, they they exist you know they deserve representation the people that have found jesus in their cheese on toast yeah no, there was a there was a, there was a woman i think that's where the specific phrase holy toast comes from as well obviously very very mm-hmm. appealing little pun there but yeah a half what's the story say half eaten slice of elderly cheese on toast purportedly showing the image of the virgin mary has attracted a hundred thousand hits on the ebay auction website I don't know how much it went for in the end, but a starting price of three thousand US dollars um, for the Virgin Mary and some cheese on toast, and then you can put Marmite on it, which is you know.
0: <laughs> Mary famously loved Marmite. <laughs> it's well written in the scriptures is it that really? she was Fantastic. a big fan of yeast extract. That's actually sacrilege.
1: <laughs> Sorry, did you say this is trademarked?
0: Uh, holy toast is there is a little TM after holy toast exclamation mark so the name i'm sure is trademarked although the ability to stamp your bread <laughs> is probably not trademarked to this to this company, no. <laughs> but yeah, apparently it's really, it's really common. I mean, this is a little bit of a like side issue, but apparently it's super common to, to like see Jesus or like even Elvis or whatever. I'm not saying that Jesus and Elvis are comparable, but apparently it's the way that our brains are geared up that we are they have evolved to basically be able to tell faces. Mm. So anytime we see something that looks even slightly like a face, it's almost like you know on your phone you've got facial recognition technology. Yeah. Our brain is like doing that. All the time, I,
1: I learned that there's a word for this actually, uh, which is which I'm Ooh. going to struggle to pronounce. But it, I believe it is pareidolia, which is w- hmm. what the brain is doing uh, when it when it, exactly it sort of sees a say a cow in some clouds or or, or what, so basically any kind of pattern recognition, right? Which obviously we are because of um, yeah because of our evolution as uh, Homo sapiens, like we are looking for. For things that we recognise as other human beings, which is how you could see a circle with two dots at the top and then a semicircular line underneath it, and be like, "It's a happy face," Woo! <laughs> <laughs> you know. It's sort of like the Rorschach test in a way, mm. in that like you're drawing out meaning from something that may actually not necessarily have any meaning, but you have constructed that meaning based on various social and cultural cues.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: And then the end point of this is 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 Virgin Mary toast. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, the thing that's so cursed about this isn't even really related to the seeing of things in other things, like the, the cursedness mm. of this. To kind of really explore the cursedness of this, I need to kind of map out a little bit more fully how it came to be in my possession. Sure. So it was it was basically a present from my mum and auntie. And it was def- obviously from a charity shop. And it's still got the uh, £2.50 price tag on the back, uh, yes. which kind of seemingly is understandable because it's got like big prints on it that say like produced in China. It's definitely a mass produced factory item, basically.
1: Which is interesting, if I can interject, because I, I look this up. And I found on, like, an FAQ somewhere, on like, somewhere was selling the item and was like, here are some FAQs about the Holy Toast stamper. And one of them was, how many Holy Toast stampers are in a package? Well, there's only one per package, but one Holy Toast stamper can make hundreds, if not thousands, of copies of Holy Toast, (laughs) which to me is, like, a very sophisticated commentary on sort of, you know all the things we're going to talk about today, you know, the invention of the printing press and, like, work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, you know, you only need one stamper, but from that you can create, like, actually infinite numbers of Virgin Mary toast slices. Yeah, like, every,
0: everyone, everyone is an artist, of like, every, any, any person can yeah. become an artist of Holy Toast,
1: Although, although you do need this tool, right?
0: Yes, yeah. It's an emancipatory tool is what we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> it means that you, the non-artist, can make artistic bread.
1: <laughs> yeah. Which is, no, I can see how that's liberatory. and um, But then the fact that it's trademarked, I find slightly troubling. And the fact, I mean, because that means that we can't reproduce the stamp ourselves. I mean, I'm not sure I'd know how to make one. But, you know, if I had some plastic and a mould... Is it Sorry, is it made of plastic, by the way?
0: It is definitely made of plastic. Because you can just tell it's made of plastic. But it's like, it's kind of made of like a kind of gold plastic. But I haven't actually opened it. And it's like in this kind what? of... Well... I don't know, like...
1: I wanted to know about your holy toast, <laughs> like like your holy breakfast experience. Is.
0: I think for me, this was always an object that was intended to go into a uh, collection rather than actual practical use. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I've got this entire odd collection of, like, religious iconography things.
1: Uh-huh.
0: It's like, I don't know, it's quite hard to explain how... I kind of got interested in religious iconography, but it's kind of the foundation of, it's like the thing that forms the foundation of why I'm so interested in material culture. Because it's just, there's so many complex, overlayered meanings of like why I think that a tiny, glow-in-the-dark baby Jesus is both hilarious and also I would want to spend my money on it.
1: Do you have one of those as well? Could you talk us through... Some of your collection in that case.
0: Okay, yeah, all right. So I do have a tiny glow in the dark baby Jesus. That was a present. What, in case you're. In case I need.
1: Context, in case is I that need...
0: Useful. Yeah, in case I need to, like, look upon the baby Jesus, but it's dark and right. I don't know, and I can't turn on a light for some reason. I don't know. I see. Sure. You know, there's the myriad of reasons. In,
1: a, in the event of a power cut. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose in a. Yeah, in some kind of like reimagined post kind of climate breakdown version of the three-day week where we don't have any electricity you'll be in need of religious guidance more than ever right
0: exactly exactly okay and uh, do you know what actually like a surprising number of this collection actually are presents and like quite often Uh they're presents from like Uh my auntie or like other friends who kind of are traditionally culturally catholic but they don't go to church so mm-hmm. like really into like the drinking like drinking vodka on like christmas eve with the family but they're less so interested in like going to a church service if you see what i mean
1: sort of the the rituals without the faith yeah. perhaps
0: yeah yeah the rituals without the faith
1: in the interest of, you know, disclosure and accountability, like, I mean, does that apply to you as well?
0: Yes, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, I was definitely someone who I grew up going to church services, but, like, here's the sticking point, is that, so I'm English-Polish, but the problem is, is well, I'm British-Polish, but the problem is that my first language is English, so, like, we'd go to these church services, but the church services would be in Polish, so it basically be, like, an hour of, like, very dense ecclesiastical lingo that I'd be like (laughs) trying to like kind of wade my way through. I was like surprisingly old when I realised that the Polish Lord's Prayer is Pretty much word for word, the English English Lord's <laughs> Prayer, but obviously with different words. Because <laughs> sure. in my head, it was like, these are completely different words. But like, I hadn't really thought about how they were just the same words, but in a different language. <laughs> but it like took a long time for me to realise that, embarrassingly. So like, I'd be in these like church services, and we'd go to this like amazing church in islington called devonia which is like one of the oldest like polish churches like this was pre-2004 and like they used to have like a pub downstairs like a social space sometimes you just find people in there that like my parents knew but then post 2004
1: uh, EU expansion being the key date in 2004. You oh
0: right, yeah, yeah, EU you're expansion. Not, you're not
1: talking about Kano's debu- debut album. No,
0: <laughs> but I could be, I could be, who knows what, what the impact of what the impact on the of that on the, yeah, yeah. on the Polish <laughs> diasporic community. But yeah, no, so like post that date, they converted the downstairs bar into like additional space for because there were so many more poles, basically, mm-hmm. and we kind of stopped going because it was just so hard to get into the church. There would be like people mm-hmm. basically like standing on the street outside wow. pre 2004 I would go to church and not really being able to understand some of the more like complex passages of what was happening I just look around the church and I just loved you know you just spend an hour basically just looking at like images and and trying to work out the stories behind the pictures
1: so that iconography that iconography still speaks to you yeah in in a way that probably doesn't to me as a sort of like secular atheist with Jewish and Methodist heritage yeah is that I mean with that obviously you you can't speak to my experience but like I you know I love exploring a church and I guess I have an interest that comes from like having studied history but I don't have an embedded sort of sense of what the meaning of a lot of these stories are I suppose yeah, yeah. As, as, as you put them like
0: well the thing is is that I don't I, I enjoy the aesthetics now without necessarily having that kind of I don't know, like spiritual connection, I want to say like, which is why I kind of love the absurdity of some of these objects, like, which is why I'm Mm. like, if someone's going to buy me, (laughs) like someone's going to buy me a present, and they know that I've got this interest, they also know that it's foregrounded in the more like outlandish, they know it's grounded in like Holy Toast and glow Jesuses rather than something that is more of a kind of practice or like more spiritually, like base. I don't know. Like I'm not, I'm not as interested in say like rosaries because they have like a really quite a formative grounding in the way that Catholics pray.
1: Would that seem more inappropriate? I don't know. Is it like somehow? Why, why do you think you feel more attached to the kitsch? If that's, is that an appropriate word even like to yeah, describe yeah, yeah. Some of this stuff? Yeah, I don't know. I just don't want to be disrespectful if you're like, no, no, the Holy Toast thing is really, yeah. you know, has a profound kind of yeah. deep meaning about about life and death for me which would be fine.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, well like you know, I just kind of want to say as like a caveat to all of these discussions that in this podcast I don't want to come across as critical of anyone who like genuinely does have an attachment to things like holy toast as a kind of symbol of their faith and their beliefs. But I think mm. what we're doing here which is quite important is kind of interrogating the relationship between objects that have been reproduced of, like, mm. you can't get more importantly spiritual into, like, Western, in Western culture, I guess, than, like, the image of someone like Mary, and the mm. way that, that, like, those kind of reproduced images have an explicit relationship to capital and capitalism, right? That's mm. kind of what we're getting at here, rather than, you know, rather than, like, critiquing someone's, like, spiritual engagement with anything.
1: Yeah, no no interest in being, like, judgmental no, no, no. the way that people practice their faith or indeed practice their unfaith yeah you know, like. but i
0: think what's really like i think what's really interesting about this is the way that something like this something like holy toast or or even this like weird little like collection of religious icons i've got is that like loads of my friends don't get it because they're like i don't know commies or mm-hmm. they're like atheists <laughs> or whatever and they're like
1: <laughs> hey there are some great commie catholics out there,
0: so. <laughs> and they're like why do you have all this nonsense basically and it's I don't know. What I think is so interesting about it is that it can show us so much about how different people take really different meanings away from like the same object, but also, yeah. but also the way that individuals can take different meanings from this over the course of their life. Like if my parents had have bought me Holy Toast when I was a kid, I would have been absolutely amazed (laughs) because you can print bread you can turn something so like mundane as toast
1: it's it's actually like a really lovely it sort of reminds me of like I don't know like play-doh sort of templates yeah it's like it's an arts and crafts sort of like toy it's
0: super playful yeah 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 like how do you make breakfast more fun but also aesthetically catholic (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean it's basically
1: the catholic equivalent of like yeah potato like smiley potato faces yeah, or like, yeah yeah or like alphabetic spaghetti I mean I'm reminded <laughs> of going to so like I, you know I, I have no Catholic heritage whatsoever but I have spent a lot of time in Spain and for a month or so I was doing like a writer's residency at this place in the foothills of um, Montserrat which is like a big Catholic pilgrimage site in Catalonia like an hour or so outside of Barcelona up in the mountains and it's a place of the monastery up there, way up in the rocks, looking down over like vast expanses of the valley floor, I suppose, and the, the fields below. You could see how people could draw a great spiritual energy from that. And like even before the Christian era, the Romans had a religious site up there, like a temple to Venus, I think. And what sticks in my memory from that was the gift shop and, and yeah, it had loads of the exactly this sort of stuff that I hope you won't mind me calling tat, you know, but like also some... some <laughs> no, nickel. I call it
0: tat. <laughs> okay, that's good. Thank
1: you. Um, I'm not cancelled for that. But like, you know, yeah, like plastic kind of neon Mary kind of key rings and stuff. But what, what interested me there was like, you've got these small, cheap things that seem to be almost like have a pathetic kind of relationship with the depths of feeling and divinity and and spirituality you know how could something so deep and so profound and that has such a huge effect on the lives of believers be reduced to something so cheap and plastic but like on the one hand but I'm just sort of saying that conjecturally like I think maybe that was my reaction at the time but I think I can now sort of on reflection sort of see that it's about sort of connecting that very real experience of being there and seeing the Our Lady of Montserrat, which is this, you know, the the thing that everyone comes to see, to that, it's like a reminder almost. It's, it's an echo, the small object that you buy from the gift shop and you take away with you. Because the point is people have still come to the pilgrimage site to begin with, right? And that mm. is like... In, in an age of sort of mass mechanical reproduction where you could very easily buy any of the things, like I've just had a look on the Montserrat uh, website and the gift shop, you could just buy all the stuff from the gift shop and have it ordered to your home and it would arrive super quickly, right? Or you could buy it mm-hmm. from a million other places. Almost everything there is probably produced in China. Like, you know, mm-hmm. like there's, there's no need to go to Catalonia, to Montserrat to buy this stuff. But the very act of pilgrimage is, it's like, it gives the lie to the idea that we're all just happy sort of, Contained in our homes, buying stuff online, and that, and that, like you know, something like an act of faith requires an act of pilgrimage to go and see the original object before it yeah. was mass-produced into something cheap. And there's there's a line from Walter Benjamin's work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, which is like the I think the text that's sort of looming over this whole episode today, where mm-hmm. he says he says every day the urge grows stronger to get hold of an object at very close range by way of its likeness its reproduction. And the fact that we all want like, I don't know, like a postcard of our favourite work of art in our house does not remove the fact that we actually, you know, if your favourite work of art is the Mona Lisa, then you still want to go to the Louvre and see it in person. And if you've Mm. been to the Louvre, like, it is insane walking down the corridor that approaches the Mona Lisa. It feels like you're, you know, on the Hodge or something, you're on a pilgrimage, (laughs) essentially, because everybody's flooding in one direction. Like people are walking past, and you know this makes me sound a bit snobby or whatever. But I'm not. I'm not particularly into the to the Mona Lisa. I'm I'm not. I wasn't impressed when I saw it myself. But like people are flooding past these absolutely magnificent works of art just so they can say that they've seen that one thing at the end of the hall, and it sort of felt a bit like that in Montserrat as well. People were just making a beeline for the massive queue to go and walk past Our Lady of Montserrat. The very specific statue that is the centerpiece, that is the patron saint Mm. of Catalonia, that is you know revered and holds this great meaning, but sort of not really bothering to look at the other stuff that was around that was sort of just to me, to me as a non-believer, looked equally magnificent. I suppose one
0: hundred percent. So. What I think is really interesting about uh, Walter Benjamin, and especially in this essay that he's written, is that he's he's kind of charting how capitalism affects art, like how it intersects with art. And he kind of looks at the idea of like the aura of artwork. So one of the main things he looks at is like, why when you go to like an art gallery and you see the Mona Lisa, is it so captivating? He argues that like non-reproduced art, so like, I don't know, it's hard to imagine now that artwork isn't reproduced because we... In an age of mass mass capital consumption,
1: but before they before like woodcuts were intru- created, and before the printing press was introduced, and before silk screen was created, and before photography, and before like we have so many ways of reproducing art now. But yeah, you're yeah, right. Like yeah. w- once upon a time, human beings did once not, upon a were time. not able yeah. to do that except by copying, which is not <laughs> not actually quite the same as a, it's not mass reproduction anyway, is it? It's limited by what the human hand can do, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. And he was writing in like 1936. So this was kind of around the times where there were quite deep-seated anxieties around like modernism and like the modern modern identities so like there was like encroaching fascism in the 30s which was kind of explicitly tied to the idea of the nation and the idea of I don't know like yeah modernity essentially Uh, and one of the things that was like a symptom or one of the things that was connected to modernity was the idea of reproducing because reproducing books for example with the printing press was explicitly tied to the ways that new ideas were kind of produced so yeah Reproduction is explicitly tied to modernity, basically. And what he kind of is thinking about is the way that art is kind of experienced. So in like an art gallery, when it's not reproduced, art is experienced uh, through what he kind of calls contemplation or what he thinks of as contemplation. So traditionally, this contemplation was also connected to like the ritual. So think of the way the icons of like Mary and Jesus are embraced or like kissed by priests Mm. in like church services. So it's connected explicitly, these objects were explicitly connected to like traditional rituals um, and they were kind of contemplated. But reproduced images of art or even images like films are experienced through kind of distraction, he kind of says. So it's kind of almost like they're experienced in a way that people stop thinking about what it is that's kind of underpins those images or things that they're seeing. But mm. the thing that I love about Benjamin, and I think this is what a lot of people love about him, is that he doesn't necessarily see this as a bad thing. Like a traditional mm. Marxist critique would be like, oh, people are like seeing all of these reproduced images and that's definitely a bad thing. Whereas he kind of sees it as the proletization of art. He's like more mm. artwork that people consume is kind of like it's not a bad thing because it becomes detached from those kind of like traditional meanings, and it can kind of be used in uh, different ways now. In by, by the masses who kind of use that art, like everyone can mm. almost kind of be an artist. So if you think about things like memes, like <laughs> if you think about like I don't know, like Lord of the Rings memes, because I'm so into Lord of the Rings or whatever. Clearly, like Peter Jackson has created this film as this like artwork, and um, people just take fucking you know stills of Frodo with a ring. And they just, like, create nonsense, funny nonsense over the top. Like, there is no aura around that artwork. I guess what Deleuze and Guattari would think about and, and kind of talked about much later than Benjamin, Benjamin which is uh, how kind of capitalism decorporealizes, so kind of takes away the physical meanings of artwork. So the way that it detaches art from historical implications and cultural associations as like a single object, as a painting, Mm. and then re-encodes them with new meanings that are driven by capital and like market forces, if you see what I mean.
1: Yeah, I mean... This brings to mind Keith, Her- a Keith Herring documentary I saw a couple of years ago when there was like a major exhibition of his work at the Tate Liverpool. They'd sort of recreated a club space to emulate some of the vibe of some of his disco parties that he put on um, as part of his sort of age charity and as part of his sort of multidisciplinary cabaret stuff. Anyway, uh, it, this was sort of more about his sort of the stuff he's most famous for, which is just sort of like cartoonish, uh, almost childlike. Um, drawings which you see very colourful ones you know which you <laughs> see on t-shirts in uniqlo and stuff like that that mm. are they're really you know in, in a warholian sort of way but really just quite ubiquitous and it's about that ubiquity and how that relates to sort of what you're saying about about the mass production of images in in the sort of post-war era um, and indeed the post sort of warhol post pop art era albeit he's sort of a pop artist himself. Because Warhol is, I think, another figure that kind of looms over this whole discussion in, yeah. in how he played with the idea of, like, the commodification of images through capital, and took things like, why, well, indeed, the Mona Lisa um, uh, or, like, someone else's photograph of Marilyn Monroe or Campbell soup cans or Coca-Cola bottles, which were, you know, already ubiquitous images and then did those wonderful sort of silkscreen screen prints and stuff Mm -hmm. Uh, but sort of yeah so jump forward 20 odd years to the 1980s and you've got Keith Haring um, becoming an increasingly well-respected and famous creator of these these sort of cartoonish drawings and there's a point there's just this wonderful point in the documentary where it's retold after his death he died tragically young of AIDS in his in I think the late 80s or early 90s and there's this, this story told of how at the moment that he, his fame and sort of notoriety and indeed the value of his work was exploding to like insane sort of levels of mm. where, you know, his pieces of work were, were sort of becoming more and more valuable. The gallerists and art dealers that he knew, or of so, some of them anyway, but then advised him like, OK, this is the point where you need to absolutely maximise the potential of your m- value and we're talking capital capital, we're not talking social or cultural capital, we're talking about the actual monetary value of your work, by basically reducing... The amount you produce to one piece a year. Do one massive piece, it'll be worth so much more money. Reduce the supply and the demand will continue to grow. You will become rich beyond your wildest dreams. And God bless Keith Herring, because his reaction to this was like, no, fuck that. And, <laughs> and so and went in completely the opposite direction because that's what he believed Hart should be doing. So he would, you know, if um if a kid because his Drawings were, like, really popular children, though, because they were quite cartoonish, as I say. Um, albeit some of them were very much not safe for work. But some of them were. You know, he did he did a number of, like, murals for no money on, like, the side of an orphanage and stuff like that. But if a, ki- a kid would, like, approach him for, like, a signature or, or something like that, he would create a bespoke kind of one-off piece just for that child. And separately from this, he did a whole series of, like, drawings on the New York subway, which he would just, like, give away. He basically he flooded the market with his work, which reduced yeah. its commodity value. And as a basically a, like a fuck you to the sort of like notion of scarcity in the art world, which is, which, yeah. And I just absolutely love that because that's sort of very much in keeping with the idea that like, yeah, the proletarianization of, uh, of art and the the fact that it should be, you know, available anywhere at all times. And this is before the internet. I mean, I think the internet transforms these conversations Mm. again in a completely new way as you're saying i actually have uh another nominee i'd, I'd like to put forward so you sort of explain the aura ben- benjamin's mm. idea of the aura as like if i've understood it correctly like what surrounds the original creation of a piece before yeah it. is that right yeah the social cultural context something that is irreproducible yes that's a word like you, yes. cannot, you cannot you cannot reproduce replicate. the aura yeah yeah fantastic um thank you i'm quite new to benjamin but i just i love him and i'm <laughs> kind of gobbling <laughs> all this stuff up so i need your guidance a little bit but okay so i have this what this made me think of like read it reading reading this essay of, of benjamin's was a video i once found on youtube of it's quite hard to describe it is a video trained a static video trained on a cassette recorder that is playing a tape which is a recording of a pirate radio transmission So the original piece of art is five members of South London's uh, best grime crew, Essentials, back in like 2003. That's the original piece of art. They are musicians. They are spitting bars and someone's playing like records in a a pirate radio studio. That was broadcast through a pirate radio for a signal that someone taped it on cassette tape which itself is like a really interesting kind of medium for mass reproduction at at low quality and low cost to the masses, Mm. essentially. And then somebody has, rather than like try and get the audio from the tape and digitize it to MP3, they have filmed using a really shit quality camera the playing (laughs) of their cassette recording (laughs) um, and put that on YouTube, which has presumably reduced the quality even further both both audio and visual quality even further. So it's grainy, compressed to fuck, basically. Mm. Um but like here you have the story of this music that I'm obsessed with that I've written about far too much, um, of Grime, like as just always using the the cheapest and most two-hand materials available, whether that's like a cracked version of, you know, Ableton or some music software off the internet or it's, yeah, like MP3s that themselves are very compressed, very often very low quality audio, or in this case, like, you know, cassette recordings. Um, And through each stage of the sort of development of grime, like another layer is added to the story of kind of how that sort of, the journey that music's gone on sort of over 10 to 15 years, Um, like all of it, like unofficial, Unsanctioned, uncopyrighted, peer to peer technology, um, from sort of pirate radio to the tape sharing and copying to the uploading onto YouTube. And it's, you know, it's not the highest quality audio you're ever going to hear, but it does speak to this same kind of Benjaminian notion that, like, what was the line that I copied out was, um, the uniqueness of a work of art is inseparable from its being embedded in the fabric of tradition. This tradition itself is thoroughly alive and extremely changeable. And that that's what you see in this like in this youtube video essentially is like the aura may have been there in the pirate radio studio back in Mm. 2003 and that aura was like four or five young lads from lewisham you know practicing their bars and doing so for for no real monetary gain whatsoever Mm. just for the joy of creation creating that art and sharing it with people who cared about it and it's gone on this mad journey through a series of incredibly low fidelity yeah. <laughs> technologies. No one's made any money at any point on that journey, yeah. interestingly, as well. But but you have a tradition. That tradition is, you know, the Jamaican um, sound system tradition. It's like London's kind of club music tradition at its UK garage into grime. There's all sorts of like cultural practices that have gone on to create this object, the original object. And then there are all sorts of like cheap... DIY technologies that have along the way kind of developed the tradition even further and it's you know it's sort of I guess I love it because it's punky as well (laughs) like it's the opposite (laughs) of Alan Partridge um, going to Curry's and reading what hi-fi magazine and trying to get the like the highest like fidelity I'm not against like high quality audio or or reproduction of art at all but I am a little bit maybe I do I do sort of feel like there's something innately lovely and warm about the fuzziness of like a pirate radio signal recorded onto tape cassette for example like maybe that's fetishizing crappiness I don't know but yeah I think Benjamin would approve
0: (laughs) I think he would I think he would like it's so far I mean even though it's like these are like conversations that are so far from his context I think he would definitely approve. And like, like this is a kind of more of a traditional example, but I was thinking about this piece of art, which I saw in the Prado in uh, Madrid. Mm -hmm. And it's by, I'm going to like, really not try to like mess up this name, but I probably will. By a Spanish artist called Juan Genove. Yeah, he's basically like a kind of post-war artist and it's called El Brazo, so The Embrace. And it's basically Mm -hmm. like, have you seen it? It's like, it's amazing. No, it's it's really like hell. men wearing kind of like brown clothes, like brown coats kind of, and it's from behind. And you can just see all of these people like hugging basically. And like mm. the background behind it is like white. So it seems like really kind of removed from its, it, it feels like it's kind of like removed from its historical time almost. Yeah. But it was like published in like 1975, just like a year after Franco's death. And it was like reproduced 500,000 times and it was like printed and like disseminated across Spain in that kind of wow. immediate post-Franco period and it was like it was kind of disseminated and it was kind of used as a symbol of Spain's craving for democracy almost
1: that's so cool anyone
0: listening to the podcast check it out It's
1: yeah let's say it again El Ebrazo yeah <laughs> Ele Ele Brazo. Brazo. and it's Juan Genovez yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, So it's just like I saw it in a museum and it was such a moving picture. But like even not seeing it in that context, I think it's still it still has such a strong meaning. And I think one of the things that uh, Benjamin kind of says, uh, also apologies for my pronunciation. Sometimes it's Benjamin, sometimes it's Benjamin.
1: Yeah, we've said I think we've said on other podcasts, but we accept both (laughs) pronunciations.
0: (laughs) But I think he's like really because he's so freaked, he's so worried about, like, rising fascism during the 30s, he really kind of sees the way that, like, emancipatory politics or, like, left-leaning politics can, like, imbue art and, like, a kind of democratised art almost with, like, political Mm. significance. And I just feel like looking at something like this or even, like, in the kind of instance of like your pirate radio YouTube uh, video, there is like a particular politics at play that's emancipatory.
1: Mm. Can I ask, read the El Abrazo, mm. um, the the painting you described, do you think, what would Benjamin have to say about the aura there? So you went to see it in situ at the Prado, which is like the most famous museum in Spain. Mm. It's like very, you know, it's the equivalent of the National Gallery or the Tate, I suppose, and is, you know, on this strip in Madrid that is all the fancy museums and in a day with tourists. And I think, you know, context is really important. That's why I'm telling, telling our listeners this, yeah. you know. Um, do you think that the real power and the aura there is in the original in the gallery or is it in the fact that 500,000 copies were created at a moment of great, political and social upheaval, uh, a, a mixture of like massive relief at the uh, the death of the dictator, but also, you know, a fear, uh, this was a moment of great fear about what would follow in Spain. There was no guarantee that Spain would transition to democracy. It did eventually, fortunately. But, you know, that to me, upon hearing this story for the first time, like it's almost like the aura really is with the postcards, like because mm. they are democratizing this sense of like hope and uh relief that is contained in the image itself
0: yeah I think he would be I think I think he would be way more concerned with the well way more interested in the way that the reproduced image is like imbued Mm. with its like political significance and it like kind of served as a form of a kind of symbol of emancipatory politics Basically, I think he'd be mm, way more interested mm. in that, one hundred percent.
1: Which isn't to like denigrate the original, because without the original, you don't have the copies. Obviously, <laughs> I'm not having a go at the artist, but it's just like what what is fascinating. The aura is perhaps, you know, is it in a way not around the the reproductions rather than the original in 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 the rarefied context of an art gallery. Yeah,
0: no, no, no. I completely agree what's interesting about this is I came to the art form I came to the picture I don't know why I didn't just say picture I came to the picture <laughs> the, I came to the picture in the art gallery by complete chance like I just stumbled across it and I was just like it was at that opportune uh. moment in an art gallery you know like you know art galleries have particular like they ha, there's a particular politics at play in art galleries where you pretend oh, yeah. to look at pictures for a certain amount of time so it seems like you you're like engaging with them you know you're like oh I'm gonna look at this for 30 seconds i'm gonna look at this for 10 seconds do you know what i mean but you're like pretending the performance of
1: interest in a piece that you actually just don't fucking like you want to walk away from after five seconds because it does because it has no immediate impact on you and you're like look you know life life is short there's a hundred and million you know pictures in this gallery alone and you know
0: exactly we all
1: reach our limits there's there's the sort of 90 minute mark of just like i actually can't look at any more art anymore
0: exactly but it came at this like complete (laughs) A, like complete opportune moment for me where my like visitor interest was like at its highest, and I guess maybe that's my like <laughs> now like. But like you know, I see it and it makes me feel. It makes me feel really, really emotional. Like still, like the solidarity at play in that yeah, in that yeah. work of art is like it really moves me. Like it makes me want to cry. <laughs> do you have
1: Do you have a reproduced copy yourself?
0: Yes, I do. I do, <laughs> do you,
1: what is it like? Is it a postcard? Is it a poster? yeah,
0: I've got it as a postcard. Maybe we should talk about it as a blessed object. It's yeah. like it's it's one of the one of the best things.
1: I'm sure we'll do more more on sort of art and reproduction in the future. There's an artist that I discovered while researching this episode called Eric Doringer, who's a living American artist relatively young, who is a sort of post warhol uh coons type generation artists but interested in the same sort of things, like the production of art as an assembly line. The pieces that I became really interested in by him were were called the this is like in the early to mid two thousands that were called the bootleg series, where he would he would take famous works of art, often by people like Coons and Warhol, who themselves were reproducing other people's work, and he would bootleg them. And there's it throws up really interesting questions about the difference between a forgery and a bootleg. Mm. Like a forgery, he would argue, is like is deliberately trying to pretend to be the original with that aura, with that value for financial gain, and a bootleg like the bootleg t-shirts you get outside a gig for example which have their own style and aren't really supposed to look like official ones Mm. you know what i mean like they in fact those bootleg we should definitely do an episode on those those t-shirts because you know you can now buy quite expensive designer sort of t-shirts for bands that are deliberately made to look like the bootlegs (laughs) oh the layers um postmodernism what a a vibe but yeah so anyway this eric Duringa guy created controversy in the art world in, in new york uh, by adapting appropriate he calls it appropriating famous works of art and just tweaking them enough changing the size perhaps changing the way that they were constructed so using a slightly different set of materials you know paints or you know collaging often with with cutting and pasting from sort of magazines that you know, so say so you've got a photo of a warhol in a magazine, he would cut that out and then fuck with that, for example, stuff like that. He would then, he set up trestle tables in Chelsea and Manhattan, which is like the art district of New York. He set up trestle tables out on the street and then sold his canvases, which were like copies, essentially, which were bootlegs, for like less than $100, apparently, which still, some would argue, is like potentially still quite expensive. But the point is that like the originals, you know, might be sold by Christie's or, or one of the big auction houses or galleries, literally next door for millions of pounds. And he's selling knockoffs for kind of less than a hundred bucks. Um, and according to according to Doringa, like most of the artists that, or their estates that he was copying from didn't mind, but some of them did send cease and desist letters and he got into various court cases and legal things. And basically, you know, it's all like commentary on sort of the way that Commodity value uh, is sort of increased to just insane and unreal um, levels in for for certain artists. Anyway, Doringa said that he would defend his work as fair use, so therefore not breaching copyright because he quote culled the pictures from the public domain of the internet. Um, this is the early two thousands when I think people had a very different view on what the internet was for or what you know what the internet's potential would be as an emancipatory kind of uh, space where, you know, things weren't just going to be monetized to fuck, where corporations weren't going to clamp down on piracy um, with increasing effectiveness, which obviously they have done. Like it's increasingly hard to find like MP3s or like, well, people don't need MP3s anymore, do they? But it's increasingly (laughs) like the, the golden age of internet piracy was the two thousands. And it feels like a very long way away at this Mm. point. I think it's worth saying, because it's all relevant to this sort of discussion about the, the reproduction of art. You know, what is, what is the cheap MP3 of the Napster era but a a bootleg and a mass production of an object that had huge commodity value yeah. and it destroyed that commodity value it destroyed whole in- industries like the internet destroyed whole like you know destroyed the culture industries for some time mm. there and it's only really now that that like the music and movie business have found ways to start to crawl back and claw back some of the the value that they they were kind of accruing off the back of artists work to come back to the sorry to this Eric Doringer guy, he was eventually like he had the police called on him by an art dealer <laughs> around the corner, um, because and he's uh, this is in two thousand and five, and this this art dealer told the New York Times that quote he had called the police for reasons that might be condemned in the art world, but that made perfect sense for any businessman like himself who has to pay a huge rent. Uh, he then went on to claim that Doringer was, quote, an opportunist and that he just wants his 15 minutes. Now that, to me, is an absolutely lovely irony. I kind of hope it's a deliberate one, because where does the idea of 15 minutes yeah. <laughs> the, come from? Like, what, obviously the full sentence there, the 15 minutes of fame, it comes from Andy Warhol, who was yeah. <laughs> like, so, who was himself creating, like, this sort of living satire of, of sort of the way that... That, you know i mean he he worshipped money as well as far as I know but like but he you know was playing with this notion of like what the value monetary and otherwise of art was in the in the age of like mass media and industrial mass production and so on
0: I guess that's the thing like people uh, are trying to like with original artworks there is a sense of trying to like buy into the authenticity it's like mm-hmm. comes back to a question of authenticity doesn't yeah. it and and the aura is kind of linked to that idea that like people are trying to buy into that idea even when the artist themselves was subverting that by like reproducing I don't know like tins of soup it's like a really interesting irony and commentary but it's almost like people still do it (laughs) like oh yeah look I'm just reproducing the soup and then someone's like I will pay a million (laughs) dollars it's just really yeah I think it's really fascinating
1: yeah the place of kind of mass-produced food and indeed beverages in the form of like coca-cola in that is really interesting as well like the so there's a sort of universalization of experience under capitalism while a pretense of mm. choice is met. like so you know the the you can go into a supermarket and you can buy you can buy 500 different colas coca cola or oh, colas sorry not coca colas but
0: oh my god can i just say it's like the coca-cola it's like the coca-colas when they did the names edition um... find your name on a coca-cola
1: well they tried to individ- yes of course what an interesting like like an exercise in individualizing something that is
0: so mass produced yeah yeah and it's so interesting <laughs> cuz i saw actually someone sent me like a picture that they saw on one of their like friends insta stories which was like someone had taken a picture of a bottle of coke and went what kind of fucking name is this and it was my name <laughs> on a Coca-Cola but oh, obviously no well, it was like wow. the full it was the full length of Kasia which is Katarzyna and it's got loads of R's and Z's in and like someone obviously saw this in like a shop somewhere like a corner shop and they bought like loads of cheap Polish produced Coca-Cola oh, amazing <laughs> so someone's just like what the fuck is this name so, on this Coca-Cola <laughs> and it's my so name some,
1: but somebody in, in the UK had imported loads of Polish Coca-Cola yeah yeah so this sort Sort of like this, you. Know, <laughs> this attempt to sort of like touch people as individuals was sort of backfired because. Well, <laughs> it only
0: work were, if they were Polish. Yeah, it would
1: only work in like yeah areas of London with a with a substantial Polish community. That's really funny. <laughs> um, it's I'm reminded of like there was a. God, I can't believe I'm talking about being a Manic Street Preachers fan again on this podcast. But as a teenager, (laughs) I was a Manic... Shut up. As a teenager, I was a Manic Street Preachers fan. We all make Um, mistakes,
0: Dan. We all make mistakes.
1: (laughs) Sure, sure. And um, there was a quote on the CD sleeve of Faster, which was one of their singles from like 1994, which reads as follows. You can be watching TV and see Coca-Cola and you know that the president drinks Coke. Liz Taylor drinks Coke, and just think, you can drink Coke too. A Coke is a Coke, and no amount of money can get you a better Coke than the one the bum on the corner is drinking. All the Cokes are the same, and all the Cokes are good. Liz Taylor knows it, the president knows it, the bum knows it, and you know it. And that's another, that's a Warhol quote, which I think perfectly gets to this idea of, like, democratisation, and that's always stuck with me, the idea that, like, no matter how rich you are, you can't get a better Coke than 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 what, and that and the, that is sort of the dream of the, you know, and it's a false dream, of course, but like the dream of democratization of experience and culture under capitalism, essentially, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. is that is I mean, and it's actually one that ironically is sort of disrupted by, by a certain very recent trends in like the luxification of like very day-to-day stuff that, and there's a name for this that I've forgotten now, but like lobster rolls in Pratt, for example, mm. or like or like gold flecked vodka and stuff. But but yeah, that's that's the that's the sort of warholian ideal essentially what's
0: really interesting there is that we're talking about like really different ways that like capitalism exists within culture and affects culture and i think like one of the kind of most interesting things the reason why i'm kind of into these religious icons these kind of mass produced religious icons or why i find them so interesting is that they like almost perfectly chart this tension between like something that is used as arguably one of, like, the most sacred things, so something which is spiritual and religious, and the way that it is completely transformed by the idea of money and market forces as becoming like Mm. a a commodity for the everyday which can be like emancipatory but can also be it completely removes it from the context of like it's it's sacredness in a way like I don't feel like holy toast is like (laughs) Mm. I don't know I don't feel like holy toast is sacred in that way (laughs) not that that's even important
1: it's in a way it's hard for me to get in that headspace because I'm not somebody who's ever had faith or been raised in, a faith, yeah, you know, been raised with lots of cultural traditions and rituals and so on, but not, but not with, not with spiritual like faith. And so, but
0: the thing is, Dan. That it doesn't even matter if you are or not, because like when you're reading <laughs> when you're reading that uh Coca-Cola quote, it's actually not really about that often. It's about the aesthetics of cool. Like a Coca-Cola in that quote is cool. And religious iconography has also kind of gone on this weird journey. I don't know, maybe that's also why I'm kind of interested in it. It's also it's also mm. gone on its own journey in, in having a cool aesthetic. So if you go into Urban Outfitters, you can find a statue of Urban Outfitters. Here is obviously a shorthand for cool cool <laughs> but like sure, if you're going to, you like? yeah, um, <laughs> go into urban outfitters you can find like a little statue of mary which also operates as like a money bank so you can put like your, your oh, spare God. coins in it and it's like a nod you know to coolness and you used to be able to buy like i don't know whether you participated in this trend but like you used to be able to go into like top shop and top man and they would sell rosary beads as like a no fashion way. aesthetic yeah it was really big in the kind of like
1: no way. yeah in the
0: kind of early 2000s and there was like wow. a kid in my school who had a rosary and he just he wasn't christian and he cut off the little jesus at the bottom of the rosaries because it was just an aesthetic
1: <laughs> was was this the same time that like this was literally the same time that white kids were wearing bindis as well wasn't
0: yeah it? yeah no there's an interesting age. <laughs> yeah there's an interesting cultural exchange going on there's it's a lot of yeah. problems arising or like a lot of interesting <laughs> yeah. things because you're not even supposed to wear Rosaries. You're just supposed to like count the beads. They're not they're not like a necklace that you wear. But like loads of kids (laughs) going around in the two thousands of like, you know, loads of different people from different backgrounds and whatever seeing, I don't know, these like rosaries in Top Man and going, Yeah, this is a cool aesthetic. So The Urban Outfit as Mary is clearly one kind of nod to, like, capitalist production. But if you go to, like, a small town, I don't know, like Vilnius in, like, Lithuania, and you, like, go to their, like, church, there are, like, you know, little stalls, little vendors who are, like, selling... I don't know, like religious iconography. And that money clearly goes into the local town and like, well, that goes into sustaining the local village life. Do you know what I mean? Or local town life. Mm. So I think there's like loads of different ways that like the money that intersects these images operates. And I just think it's really fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. There are lots of different ways that capitalism operates. So if you want to support our Patreon, because we're not getting paid for this. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening today. Um, my name is Cash T.
1: And I am Dan Hancock's.
0: Um, and I just wanted to dedicate this episode to my grandmothers. So I wanted to dedicate it to my grandmother Yanina, who I definitely got the Catholic aesthetics gene from because she loved, <laughs> <laughs> she loved like all of these, like she loved like pictures of the Virgin Mary and stuff. But also I wanted to also dedicate this, to, uh, this episode to my grandmother Staniswava, who sadly passed away at the end of January, 2021. She was just three months away from uh, her 100th birthday. And she was wow. a truly like amazing woman. She was a mother to 12 children. She kept the family together when my grandpa got sent to a Siberian gulag in the kind of penultimate months of the Second World War, and uh, she kept her town together as well when the advancing Russian army nicked the church bells <laughs> of her like of her local church, and she basically got all of the uh, community to like do a do a whip round, but not of like money. They she basically got them all to distill alcohol (laughs) and distilled vodka (laughs) and she managed to uh tempt the russians with this vodka to which is like conforming to all of the kind of eastern european stereotypes i've said it they're there but she basically (laughs) managed to get the church bells back for the community by by basically buying them back with vodka so with
1: with like homemade with hooch that's absolutely with homemade vodka
0: yeah so i just wanted to dedicate this this episode to her
1: lovely and uh yeah, it only remains for us to say thanks so much for listening and do please hit us up on Patreon and support our work so that we can continue making episodes for many series to come. Uh and yeah, if you want to see the Holy Toast stamp, then go and check out our Instagram.
0: And and for other and for other items discussed in this episode, because I truly do have a <laughs> Like non-exhaustive range of uh, of very odd religious iconography that you can get little glimpses of on our Instagram.
1: At Instagram, we are cursed objects UK, and on Twitter as well. You can check out these images and more links on cursed objects UK, and yeah, if you subscribe to our Patreon, you can get a whole lot more of kind of reading and cool links to related videos and other thoughts of ours. Related to all the themes in this episode. Thank you.
0: Bye.